Starting, scaling, and exiting a business is hard. So why do some companies achieve seven, eight, and nine-figure exits? To answer these questions, we sit down with top entrepreneurs who have exited for more than $10 million or currently run $10 million-plus businesses and grill until they share their proven tactics and strategies. Welcome to Beyond 8 Figures. often, as you guys know, sitting down with just amazing folks who have either exited for more than $10 million uh, or are currently running businesses that gross more than $10 million annually. And we get to the bottom of exactly how they started and or scaled and or exited their business. And uh, we've covered a lot of very interesting ground here so far on the show. And if you've missed any of the past episodes, uh, be sure to check out some of our past episodes with folks like billionaire Naveen Jain, uh, Reed Tracy, the president and CEO of Hay House, uh, Brian Smith, the founder of Ugg Boots, etc., etc. And, uh, and and I got to tell you, you know, as much as I love sitting down with those who uh, have been able to exit uh, for more than ten million. Uh, I, of course, and I know you guys love this too. We love sitting down with folks who are still in the middle of it and are still in the grind and trying to figure out exactly what is next. And so uh, we actually have a guest on today who's still in the middle of it. And actually, it's been a, a pretty interesting journey for him. And um, and if you listen to podcasts, actually, this brand, this company will be very, very familiar with uh, to you uh, because almost every podcast that I listen to, this company is featured as a sponsor or runs ads, et cetera, which is an interesting strategy for growth that we'll talk about. But let's bring on Mike McDermott uh, from Fresh Books. And uh, Mike, how you doing, brother? Hi there, uh, Steve and company. Yeah, man. Good to have you on. And uh, and so let's just get this out of the way right out of the gate. Uh, and if you've listened to the show, then you know what you're in for. If you haven't, then welcome to the party. Uh, but just let's talk about how you meet the criteria for Beyond Eight Figures. Have you exited from a business for more than eight figures, or do you currently run a business that grosses more than ten, uh, more than eight figures annually? I'd be in the, the latter category, grossing more. Yeah, and so FreshBooks right now, what in 2017 you guys were projected to do around $50 million in revenue. Did that come to fruition? It's funny. Uh, we we actually don't disclose this stuff. So y'all did some some. The only number that's been out there ever was through Forbes. And so let, let's just use it as a, a, a as a um, uh, the, the best number that's publicly available and say yeah, sure. And, and we should be tracking you know beyond there. All right. Well, let's just put it to you this way: Does that does that number make you look really good, or does that number not do you justice? Which is it? It's all a matter of perspective, right? <laughs> I, uh, it's a good start. Let's put it that way. It's a way. good start. All right. And in, in 2018, are you going to be in and around those numbers, or are you seeing attrition? Um, I, you know, there's there's always attrition in a business cars. That doesn't mean you're not growing, though. So uh, I think we're we're still on a good clip. Lots of growth uh, happening. Lots of growth still to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you guys are in the the SaaS type revenue model, software as a service. So people join they that you do have a freemium type model right so people can join for free and then they get certain pieces or is it, or is it a trial period how do you guys structure your freemium model yeah we've played with various ones over the years we're primarily a free trial today um so you'd sign up have a period of time to you know uh, yeah enough time that you should definitely find value in our offering and then uh, hopefully stick around and to that end what 
because you said you've tested different things, and there's others that we've uh, spoken to about the, the the SaaS sort of model. Uh, what what did let's just say what what didn't work for you was it was it a low dollar amount and then converting to a regular fee or what what did you find didn't work as you look to scale the the, the SaaS model here for FreshBooks? Yeah, I, I think there are trade offs, um, you know, and pricing is is. One of the things you can do to to make your business and your business model work differently, depending which customers you're 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 seeking. And so, uh, you know, we we have had at one we started out with a freemium model. We moved to a free trial. Who knows? We could we could change it up uh, again based on uh, what the objectives are at the time, what we think uh, would be you know best for our customers fundamentally. But we found a free trial is uh, is a good way to have people come in, be able to ha- experience the product. Uh, sometimes having um, uh, a time point mm-hmm. uh, with a with a product like ours, when people are trying to decide. Uh, you know, am I going to adopt this and change my behavior? Because I'm coming from Word and Excel or something like that. Sometimes it's actually helpful to have, uh, a, you know, a time frame where I need to decide or not yeah. uh, if, if I'm going to change my behavior. And so we found that, that to be helpful for folks to both find the value and, and give them, like, <laughs> honestly, like a bit of a goal to work towards. And, um, and then, uh, you know, uh, many of them choose to, to carry on and be customers for years and years. Yeah, totally, totally get that. And so for those of the – let's just – kind of go back to the foundational uh, discussion here for a second. So for those who are not familiar with FreshBooks, your company does what? How do you, how do you describe it? So thank you. It it is uh, what we are is ridiculously easy to use invoicing and accounting software in the cloud. Uh, So you can get it on your desktop and get on your mobile phone. And uh, the idea is, uh, you know, we, we think accounting software is unnecessarily complex and sort of homogenous. So we built our business around just uh, customers who need to send invoices. So if you invoice, you need FreshBooks. And what that means is you're largely service-based. You're getting paid for your knowledge, your time, and expertise uh, instead of worrying about, like, retail. So we, we just need to help with a whole bunch of billing pains that invoicers have. Mm-hmm. Nice. And so let's let's take it back. Um, well, let's just take it back a number of steps. First and foremost, the official launch year for FreshBooks is 2004. Is that is that accurate? I th- yeah, that is accurate. That is accurate. Okay, just want to make sure. So we're going on about 14 years now. Then, so going back to the early, early, early stages of FreshBooks, you actually, you know, it, it's funny in author land they say that you write the book that you most need. In in business land, sometimes you create the product that you most need. This program this that you actually sat down you coded this first version yourself of this this was actually born out of a need where you felt frustration in terms of sending invoices and uh, and, and had some data loss and, and so on and so forth so i just want to take uh, folks back to the to sort of the germination period what what was the seed of the idea here yeah so it was one day uh, i was using microsoft word to bill my clients and i saved over a prior invoice for reasons i won't bore you with right now and i i basically just snapped i said there's got to be a better way to do this and so i just started building it and i, I really built it for myself mm-hmm. you know that scratch your own itch write your own book however you want to put it yeah uh and and i did not have you know global ambitions um you know today we have paying customers in 120 countries over 20 million people have used the software since we started uh, but when I started out, I was really just building for myself and to get an invoice in front of, you know, 
one client actually, mm-hmm. uh, and I built a simple you know web application to do that. And then uh, you know over time, kind of thought you know other people could use this, and you know how might we do this, and how might we do that, and that's that's what's brought us to here. Yeah, and, and let's take us uh, please, because there are folks out there right now who are probably in a, in a similar situation where they have something that's definitely helping them. They created it for themselves, and it's definitely helping them. But they're maybe thinking like, Jesus, this might have some mass market appeal. Like, I, if I'm benefiting from this, then other people could benefit from this, right? So no matter what it is, we don't have to get into specifics or try to play hypotheticals here. But I want you to take us through then what I might call, so that's mm, that's the, the phase of start, and, and now we move into the phase of scale Take us through exactly what happened and how you began to share what you were doing so that it became more than just you using this this service, using this program. Yeah, so as soon as you have something, your big problem becomes like distributing it. How do I get into other people's hands? How do I get them using it? How do I get them then, you know, those who come passing on the word? And so um, I, uh, you know, the good news is the reason I was sending people invoices was I was running a small agency. And it was, you know, our core focus was really helping people find traffic online, like internet marketing, and um, uh, and, and convert that traffic. And so I was able to take a lot of those skills, basic internet marketing skills from like the early 2000s, and apply them to our business. And that's how we started out. And then we, you know, we started learning about blogging, and that was kind of new in, you know, sort of 2004, 2005. That was a big deal. Social media really was just starting out. So yeah. way before Twitter, way before Facebook. And so we kind of got in there and were playing with some of those things. So this is really like the internet was really just gathering steam around this time. Yeah. And I think, you know, that, that really helped with our marketing. I think it also ultimately ha- helped with our product because the products we were competing with were, you know, desktop software. Mm-hmm. And we were, you know, we were natively building for, frankly, the internet and the, the cloud before it was even cloud, right? Uh, yeah. So so I think those things in the long run have helped, you know, carry us and continue to because I actually think, amazingly, it's still early days for what it is that we do. Mike, let me take a step back here, though, because you, you're, are you euphemistically referring to we or was there actually a we? Because my understanding is it was you in the basement, right? So I, it, it was me in the basement for uh, a relatively short period of time, so like three months. And then myself and one person, my co-founder, who is remote, uh, and we he worked with like one or two days a week with me. And then, you know, we kind of brought that to launch with a person who, jo- you know, uh, joined us for a month. So there were kind of three of us, one of them full time. My co-founder, the original co-founders were part time for the first like two and a half years because we had to, uh, you know, pay for ourselves. And we had a third co-founder who joined and actually bought in and, and paid and worked full time managing and moving some things along. So when, when and are you talking so the original co-founder is this a 50 50 deal you now bring in a third he buys his way in are we a third a third a third no um you know we we, we never really were i mean a lot of the, the legwork and and you know sort of full you know uh, more time engagement was on mine so we found a way to split that up between the two of us at the start and then the third one bought in and you know we we tried to help him get a, a meaningful stake because that's you know we wanted a real co-founder mm-hmm so was there at that point when the buy-in took place? Did you actually then bank some cash at that point, or did you use that? Or did you use <laughs> that to reinvest keep going, in the business? Mike, he's going to keep going. I, I, well, I mean, this is like yeah. this is the the beauty of this entrepreneurship. I mean, we're we're trying to get to the bottom of like how. Yes, I'm going to keep going. You know I me, know, I, and, I but know. but this is this is the nuts and bolts that people want, and I want. Richie wants. You want. Like right? yes. we want to know how you go from just this uh, just this 
great idea to building a company that yeah. you know, generated 50 million plus in 2017. Well, so the first thing you need to know is you got to work with great people, right? Because this notion of we started and, and my, you know, the original co-founder and I, who were the only two people, you know, for like the first year who had any kind of stake in the company, uh, we didn't like create a shareholders agreement or anything like that, you know, for, for about a year. And, but we were getting very passionate about this thing. We we're spending all our spare time on it. And, um, and so, if, and I don't know if this is where you all are hunting, but if you're wondering, like, well, how did you figure out who owned what and stuff like that? Like, um, you know, my, the, the short answer is uh, working with great people makes that simple. And so my co-founder, Joe, and I, uh, we decided it was time to figure out who owned what mm -hmm. <laughs> about a year in. And we're like, okay, well, let's go to lunch. And we wrote, went to lunch and it was like, okay, great. You write down on a piece of paper what you think you should own. I'll write down on a piece of paper what I think I should own. And then let's flip the pieces of paper and see where we're at. Uh -huh. and, and that's what we did. And, uh, and, and what we were those numbers? I mean, like, what did you think you should own? What did he think he should own? Yeah, they they were not the same, uh, and I, <laughs> I think that's they cr weren't. credit credit to us both. But but you know, and then there was a gap between where they would have netted out, right? So mm -hmm. so I and mean, we basically just said, okay, let's meet in the middle of those two things and call it a day. Mm -hmm. And so the point is, we spent about seven minutes on that conversation and never looked back. And you know that I think, and and by the way, we we fought like cats and dogs over like where a button should go uh, in the product, but. But, you know, the big, you know, really meaningful decisions, I, I think that's where you really, you know, test your values and the quality of the human beings. That stuff was easy. Yeah, yeah. and I think that's really unusual because we've had interviews with people where the partners may have disbanded or things soured. And for you guys to spend seven minutes on a very long-term look that's, you know, it's kind of like a prenup in a way. Mm. And so I think that... You're right. It is about the quality of you guys coming together and making a decision and then fighting over the button on the software. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of fighting about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there's no um, anyways, it, people, people, people. Mm -hmm. So what, what I'm trying to understand then is, is structure. I mean, obviously, you had done a lot of legwork here. Uh, you had already built a first version of this. I assume he came in after that. So, I mean, to assume that you guys were, at, you know, in a 70, 30, 80, 20, 60, 40, I mean, I, I would hope that it would be to your advantage, even out of the early gates there. But let's, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it would have been to your advantage, correct? Well, I, I, or not to uh, your advantage, but you would have had a, you would have had a listen, larger I, I share. I think we end up in a fair place. That's, uh, I think that's the, the bottom line. I yeah. got you. So, so when the third partner came in, did because yes. in, a, in a typical scenario, if a, if, a, if a third partner comes in and buys his way into an existing entity, and you are giving up equity to bring this partner in and cut off a piece of what you've clearly earned over the last three, four, five years, whatever it worked out to be at that point, did you then bank that or did you reinvest that into the business to grow it? Right. So here's what I'd say. They came in, they wrote a check. I can't remember what it was, like $40,000 or something like that, like nice. nothing crazy. Yeah. Uh, you know, so this is what we're dealing with, right? Yeah. We're kind of, you know, early, late 20s, something like that. Yeah. Um, so not a huge check. Right. Gotcha. Uh, but like a signal. And we, we put that all back into the business. Did. Yeah. And then we gave him a chunk of equity for that. And we actually re-upped him a little further later because, you know, he was moving mountains for us. And I think this is back to like, you know, it's kind of priceless to have a great founder, somebody with that level of commitment sure. and drive and contribution. And so, you know, you look back at all those decisions, like if you sit around like splitting hairs on those, like mm -hmm. it's just the, the wrong place to, to be. Yeah. And, and was this and, and was that part of your thinking going in with this third partner 
was this is someone who brings a skill set to the table that we don't have, and you're going to hit the proverbial ceiling in terms of your and your partners, your original partners' abilities, and this third partner had a different skill set and a different set of limitations, if you will, that would enable yep. you to go much, much further. So I'm sure that was part of the discussion as well. So I, I think this individual was definitely a compliment uh, to us. I'd say a lot of that is hindsight. You know, like you sort of don't know these things. This, again, mm -hmm. happened to be another really solid human being who highly productive and had, you know, relevant experience. But you don't know how it's going to work out. And it certainly wasn't like none of us were experts. Um, how should I put it? None of us had like built a software company before or worked mm -hmm. as an operating executive. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's not what we were getting. Uh, but we were getting somebody, you know, with relevant skills and commitment and who, you know, was a true partner and who was going to, you know, figure it out uh, and stick in and do the hard work to, you know, persevere. Like we, we had 10 paying customers, you know, after two years from starting, mm -hmm. right? And they were paying us $9.95. We were making $100 a month. My wow. co-founder's a PhD. This other guy's an electrical engineer, left like a consulting job to come and join us. And, you know, I'm, you know, whatever, a, a business school guy who was running a small agency. So, you know, those are like, he wasn't coming for the money at that point. Yeah. He was coming for the, the adventure and the journey. And, you know, to be like penny wise, pound foolish on equity, uh, yeah. you know, I think would have been foolish. Yeah, for sure. So end of year two, you're doing, it's nine bucks a month at that point. And you said there's a couple hundred users. Sorry. Yeah. Almost the other way around, but like we had like 10 customers paying us a hundred bucks a month. Oh, 10. Yeah, sorry. The other way around. <laughs> 10 paying you a hundred. All right. So let's talk about then how you began to scale. So what, what happened? Was it, was it a key hire? Was it a particular marketing initiative? I mean, you had the product, you just had to get it in front of more of the right people. Did you change your pricing? I'm just trying to figure out. So end of year yeah. two, we've got 10 so, customers. What happened? Yeah, so I, I'd say absolutely nothing was static from that point forward. And, you know, arguably it never has been since. So, um, you know, we were signing a lot of people up. They just weren't becoming paying customers. So we probably we had a product. I don't know that we had the right product. Uh, our pricing model was probably not appropriate, uh, meaning that, you know, we were pretty much giving it away. Um, and so we had to work on that. Uh, we had to work on our marketing to go find more people. So you're working all these things and you're trying to figure out how to run and grow a business. Like I'd run a, you know, I'd built a little professional services firm, but it's a very different thing to build a product company. Sure. And I had never seen that before. So we were trying to figure all that out as you do. Uh, and that, I mean, that's the fun of it. Like trying to figure all this stuff out. Yeah. Well, so go ahead, Richie. Well, I was going to say, and you're building a product for professional services companies. So it's kind of a, a mix of the two. Um, I had a quick question going back because, you know, we've said it's accounting software. But as we all know and don't need to bring up the competitors' names, there was a lot of competitors that were big in this market. Whoa. Well, we had time slips on, too. I mean, we had yeah. the Mitch Russo from time slips, right? Oh, and yeah. I mean, some, so, of the, some of the similar so, stuff. What were some of the things at the very beginning? Before we go into the scaling part, like I, I'm still interested in the – MySpace was here before Facebook, but look what Facebook did, right? And and you hopefully get to be your version of Facebook passing up some of these other people here. So what was some of the marketing or who was your avatar that you were going after that some of these other companies weren't? Or how did you differentiate yourself in front of these other competitors? Yeah, I think what we did, and we still play in this land. So, like, we're invoicing and accounting software. We solve your your billing problems, uh, you know, for firms who have 
billing problems related to invoicing. If you're a point of sale, if you're retail, your restaurant, that's not us. But if you if you create invoices, that's where we live. That is actually where uh, we started out. And, and we, we only did that. So when we started out, it was just invoicing. And I think that's a classic approach, you know, like an attack vector. You take on a big platform by finding some sliver of it and doing it better. Mm. And so we started out, we were just online invoicing, and we just kind of banged that drum. And there were people who didn't like the desktop software, and there were you know, really no one else who was doing invoicing as comparably or as well as we were. And, uh, and that, was, that was our hook. And then over time, as we got to know our customers better, you know, they asked us for, well, like before I send an invoice, I need to, I need to send a, an estimate for my work and a quote. So can you help me with that? And we said, okay, sure. And then eventually it was like, well, I need to actually record expenses to put them on my invoices. And that is why we got into the other side of the ledger which is, you know, interesting, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, anyhow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see that. I could also see how it plays well into the podcasting space because... A lot of po- solopreneurs. A lot of solopreneurs, a sure. lot of people who are consultants, and this is a way for them to position themselves as an authority. Mm-hmm. And then now this floats in perfectly, and as they do other services, these other ancillary services you have fit right in. Yeah. Mike, let me let me ask you this. So just so we can paint the picture here. So year three, we're moving into year three now. Have you raised any outside capital? Well, we had uh, the co-founder join. All the co-founders had put in some money. So kind of year three. Year three was about the time I had um, – uh, we had two kind of, you know, angel my, – like my – my best friend's dad, who like retired and was kind of helping advise me a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, he, he wrote a check, and you know I think that was like a forty or fifty thousand dollar check. So so not like today, like yeah. times were you know just sort of different. So sure. the checks were like forty or fifty thousand dollars, and and we'd figure out how to scrape by on that for a while. Mm-hmm. So and the we, short answer is not beyond that at that stage, and then and then we raised a little more angel, you know, like a quarter million dollars, probably at year like four or something like that, four or five. And what were do you remember what the terms were, what the valuations were at that point? and what you cut off so great question um you know the way i like to think about it is you know those folks are up you know like more than 100x right so <laughs> uh so that's yeah. uh you know that's that's uh yeah it's a lot less than today well for sure but at the same token you know who who could have predicted where you were going to be taking this company it was a risk i mean to write it to write a check i mean let's be honest at the end of year three I mean, let's assume you, you had some growth, but if you even had 10x growth over year two, you got 100 paying customers. So, you yeah. know, it's not like you're, you're at the scale where you're at now. So it's a big risk, you know? I mean, it obviously plays on, on both sides of that. But, you know, it really does beg the question of do you still have a day job? I mean, do the three of you guys have money coming in from anywhere else? You got a PhD, you got you, you got your other partner, and you're not exactly rolling in the cash at this point. Yeah, so uh, my co-founder, who's the PhD, he actually never worked with us full time. He's a tenured professor in computer science now at a university, uh, you know, University of Guelph. So, see, he always had the day job. Uh, my other co-founder, um, he paid forty grand and took a massive haircut, mm-hmm. <laughs> and has been here full time ever since. Mm-hmm. I've been here full time in the early years. I had a consulting agency. Uh, which I worked in like 10% of my time and then, you know, used that to kind of keep me alive while I focused on uh, building this business. Yeah. So, so we had a bit of a mix to get us through those early years. And then, you know, eventually it was like, okay, I'll, I'm going to draw a salary. And then eventually we got a board together and they're like, you have to start paying yourself. Yeah. Right. And so we, we, uh, you know, we got, we actually, which, which was great. That was a nice signal from the, the board. Yeah. But you can't, you can't pay yourself unless you've got a burn. So to have a burn, you got to be raising more money. So were you burning out of the 250 to pay yourselves? 
uh, so we had, I mean, we did have revenue. We were growing like, you know, at a huge percentage for a long time. Like, this is the thing about us is like, you know, the, the, everyone's like, Hey, what was that inflection point? What was that one thing? It was actually just like, listen, they were really small numbers, but the growth rate was really high. And if you do that mm-hmm. for long enough, like it starts to get interesting. So, mm-hmm. um, so we, you know, we use capital you know, more so to like invest in like marketing programs and things like that, mm-hmm. uh, than to cover off salaries. Yeah. So when, when did scale really start to, to hit for you and, who was the first, let's just call it, key hire uh, outside of the three of you that that really helped to spur some of that on? Yeah, so we, um, you know, I, again, just kept clipping along. High growth rates. The question is like, how do you sustain them? And we uh, we we brought in a guy who was like a marketing guy, and uh, he he had success in uh, like actually an online dating company previously. Mm. I, I don't know if you ever heard of Lava Life. I think they're sure. owned by Match Group sure. now or something. So so he was an early uh, marketing leader there, and he was off kind of doing some stuff. And and we brought him in, and and I, I think he was like our first like transformative hire, mm-hmm. helping to further us there with a lot of our, our go to market channels. Um, and then, you know, we hired our first, you know, per, like software development manager cause that wasn't who we were Yeah. and, uh, you know, and, and on it went and you know, what was interesting though, and I think I'll share this for others because, you know, it's really hard. Like I hadn't worked anywhere else, you know, I was meeting people, I was trying to do all the right stuff. Um, and I, you know, I got, we got to about a hundred people and I was still very involved with a lot of things. I, you know, I would say too much so. And, but I, what, I think people, you know, this is the interesting thing about that period of time. And people thought I desperately wanted to be involved with everything. And I was just like, listen, I just continue to be unsatisfied with the quality of execution if I'm, I'm not involved, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is, you know, which is a, a tough dynamic. It's two sides of the same coin. Anyways, we, we then hired, you know, what I called our, our first sort of true executive. And that's where I realized, like, and, and found like, oh, we can scale beyond here. And the whole key is hiring people like this person. Mm-hmm. And that will change my game. And so then I like in the next sort of 12, 18 months, we basically hired like six or seven of those folks. And and then that then became like, okay, now we're hitting new gears. And there's actually like, a, you can see how you can go beyond 100 people because, yeah, I don't want to be involved with the stuff. It's impossible to be, um, you know, it just doesn't scale. And so I, I think I think that notion, like that, you're going to make mistakes hiring. And by the way, I hired great people. They were wonderful. I'm super grateful to them, but they didn't scale the way I needed people to scale. Mm-hmm. And that's tough because they were learning. And, you know, some of them, even that great first marketing guy I brought in, right? Like it's like, it's a different skill set. You need different people at different stages. But then there was like, you know, past a hundred people, there's like this the kind of executive great talent and there's more and more levels to it as you go on. But that was a real breakthrough. Yeah. And, and I mean, it is interesting because going from a three-person organization, I mean, you kind of just walked through it here, but going, going from a three-person type organization to a hundred-person type organization is, is a very different set of skills from a management standpoint, from a human resources standpoint. And as you said, it took you a while until you really, really were able to dial in in terms of the, the, the ideal person to have there on your team. Where was it that you found it to be most difficult in terms of your growth? Was it going from zero to a million? Was it going from a million to 10 million or 10 million and beyond? As you, as you look back now, what was the most difficult period for you and why? Well, you know, I think the answer is yes. <laughs> um, uh, the, the challenge is, 
that the challenges are different at each one of those stages. And then the question is, is can you morph and contort yourself to solve those different problems at those different stages? Uh, and all of that is hard, mm-hmm. right? All at the same time while learning, you know, how to lead and like what companies look like and everything. So you, you're just, you know, there's, there's so many different uh, problems to solve on so many different vectors, but, but that's also the fun of it. Right. Uh, yeah. if, if you're into it. So, it's uh, you know, it's not for everybody, but uh, but it's, it's great. And so I'd say all of those are hard. They were just hard in very different ways. And if mm-hmm. you know, if I went back and did it again, like there's you know, I, I feel like and this is why people love backing repeat entrepreneurs. Like I feel like I could do all this stuff way faster next time. Right. Uh, which is which is a good feeling. Well, let's, uh, let's pick that apart for a second. How could you how could you do it much faster this next time? Well, I'd start by, you know, saying, hey. On the back of this napkin, this is why I want ten million of your dollars to go build this thing. I'll, you know, I'll chip in some of my own, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? So it's like, okay, here's capital. I'm gonna go build a team. Uh, you know, I don't know. I will say this: like, I, the part of me, I, I've said a few times, like, I don't know if I want to go back to sub thirty people again, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's just there's not enough going on for me anymore at that stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, at the same time, those are some of my very favorite problems to solve and some of the hardest ones. Right. Because you're, you're really trying to figure out, like, who's the customer? What market is this? Maybe like, how do we articulate this this technology or whatever it is that we've built? Like those are, you know, some really amorphous, nebulous problems. And I love that uncertainty. Right. So yeah. anyhow, so <laughs> I don't want to go back there. I want to go back there. It's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's a. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just kind of interesting. And that's, you know, that's the beauty of that, That's life, right? There's all yeah. these different stages and different challenges. So let, let me ask you this then the, in terms of the growth of the company going uh, to the point where I think at one point you had over 2 million active users, or at least uh, in a couple of th- those numbers have varied, but let's just say it's well over a million active users. Um, how did you do that? Like what were, what were some of the key strategies and initiatives that you leverage. I know you're saying it was kind of organic and you did this and then a little bit of that and a little but I mean come on dude to get to a million plus active users you you got to be doing something that's really working well for you. What what did you find worked really really well for you for adding users quickly? Yeah, like I I mean I I hate to say it but it's like it's a million little things, mm. right? Like there's there's no silver bullet. And I feel like everyone if you're going hunting for a silver bullet, like just turn around and go home. Right? It's not how it works, right? You actually have to figure out, you know, you have to figure out like, ah, does does our product fit, right? Is that going to be the thing that unlocks it? You know, maybe, maybe not. Does can we acquire customers in these channels? And so, I, I think one thing we did, which was good, was we were very disciplined about who we served, right? And we stayed in like, hey, we're invoicing, and we do it for these segments of the small business market, and then we went out and spent time with those. And so, I think one of the things we did very successfully is we stayed focused, and that's not easy. Uh, you know, it's very easy to spread yourself thin, but, uh, and very hard to stay focused, but staying focused is actually critical. So, uh, I'd say, you know, focus and perseverance were the things. Mm-hmm. And is that because you really only have had one product? You know, and I mean, it's interesting because a lot of small businesses, no matter what the industry is, they get tempted to go and build complementary products or programs or services or whatever it might be. You guys haven't really been tempted in, in, to do things in that way. 
Oh, we've done we've done them in different ways. We've completely, uh, you know, re replatformed and redesigned our offering, and, and and it is a platform now. And so we add things inside of it and to it and extend it. But it's it's still in that category of you know, frankly, invoicing and billing, you know, with some accounting software on the back. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know that that actually turns out to pretty big deep space that people have a lot of problems with. And so you know, could we zing over and try and do like payroll at the same time or something? I think I think it's hard. Like it's always you know, intellectually, it's easy to go think about another category to go and build and dominate in. Mm -hmm. uh, in practice, it's actually very, very hard uh, to win one, let alone two. And so, uh, again, back to focus, you could say it's narrow, but, you know, I, what, what I have found in my experience is if you pick a narrow thing and you focus on a specific target segment and you do that well, a, a whole bunch of other people are going to find you and choose to use you. You know, it doesn't mean you don't get other customers. It just means you continue to apply yourself in a very, very focused way. And, you know, and, if, and, and maybe someday you move on and expand it to two segments or whatever it is. But mm -hmm. uh, that discipline is hard. And I think it's actually more important in small business than almost any other, um, frankly, it, it, more so than consumer and more so than, than enterprise. Yeah. And, I mean, interestingly enough, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but my understanding is you you actually had a pretty decent sized capital raise recently, didn't you? Uh, we have raised capital. 2014, we raised uh, our first institutional capital, and that was uh, 30 million US. And last year, we raised some more as well. Yeah, and why why take on the money at that point? I mean, it seems like a ca my understanding of most SaaS, especially thriving SaaS businesses, is they're freaking cash cows man you know i mean look you've got the software you've got customer service to support it but as soon as you get it dialed in in terms of customer acquisition and acquiring a customer in the long you know the lifetime value of that customer as it relates to what you're expending to get it uh, you know your expenditures to get it it just it's kind of a no-brainer in terms of the formula why raise i mean between the two rounds you've raised over a hundred million dollars now correct uh i think it's just a, a little shy of that and and the the reason is um but, you know, in the ballpark, I suppose. So so the, the reason is, uh, you know, a couple of things. Uh, so first of all, um, what you like, you know, the philosophy around fundraising is, you know, uh, in my philosophy, at least, is, hey, you want to be able to return the dollars to people. So don't don't raise it if you don't think you can. Uh, and then thing number two is if you can raise capital, which will be fundamentally dilutive, but you think by doing that you can you can make your company like say you're diluted by 10%. If you can create more than 10% value at the end of the day, uh, and, you know, and ideally return that capital for those other folks, like you should you should be doing that. And so where we got to was hey, the faster we grow. Actually, the more capital it requires because the nature of subscription revenue is it pays back over years. Like our customers you know, are around for years. Yeah. And so you know, the cost to bring them to you is you know, it doesn't get paid back immediately. And the more customers you add, like, you know, that consumes capital. And then the other thing is, uh, hey, huge market. You know, we've got a great product, but there's way more to do. Mm -hmm. And so it's really like investing in basically going and getting more customers and furthering the development of our product and platform. Those are the, you know, those are the reasons. And, and frankly, things like building out the team to go and chase the opportunity. So hiring executives and, and that kind of thing. And frankly, I found institutional capital and, and board members there to be helpful uh, with a variety of those decisions. Sure. And it kind of begs the question. I mean, you talk about a certain amount of energy that takes place when you have 30-plus employees. I mean, that seems to be the sweet spot for you. Obviously, as you continue to grow, there's a certain amount of energy, and I think you probably get a little bit addicted to that energy. 
and of course, as you continue to grow, it's probably more exciting for you. I mean, you've been doing this now for a number of years, and and how, and I think that's a big part of this is just being able to stay excited about what it is that you're doing. Um, sh- sure, I'm not going to discount that. Yeah, uh, you know, and I, I don't know that 30 is my sweet spot, but less than 30 might might not be. Well, that was the, that was the number <laughs> yeah, you used. Yeah. You just said you yeah, just said you I don't want to do I anything. I want to go less than that. Less yeah. than that, yeah. right? Like I think it's just not enough happening. But but you know that that's beside the point. So yeah, um, I, you know, I, I think I mean sure, they're like. You're chasing a vision ultimately, and and making an impact, and and trying to help as many people as you can. And sometimes yeah. capital can help you, uh, you know, a increase the probability you get where you, you want to go, uh, and b just fundamentally have a bigger impact and mm-hmm. and de risk getting there. And, and it, you know, look, it, it begs the question too in terms of the vision is is how do you actually? And that's one of the things is in fundraising land. I don't know if you know this about me, but I actually own Liquor.com, and I've been involved in the dot-com space since mm, 1995. So I've been online for a long time. Yeah, and fundamentally, one of the issues around capital raises, of course, if you can raise it, you raise it. You don't want to say no to it. But at the same token, being able to allocate allocate those dollars in in an efficient and in a smart way becomes increasingly challenging when you've got certain elements of your business fairly dialed in. So how much of that is allocated in, in your mind at this juncture towards uh, towards uh, just marketing and, and customer acquisition? Um, well, a couple of things. First of all, I just want to uh, point out that we actually said no for a long time. Uh, we had people from, I'd say, 2006 to 2014 trying to get us to take their money, right? So uh, we were pretty, and like to the point of, you know, I, I kind of established myself, you know, for better or for worse, as a bit of the the poster boy for the anti VC movement. I was just like, no, I'm not into it, or what have you. Mm-hmm. But you know, what I found is once I was able to actually bring in those that, that first executive and build a team that looked a little more like that, like that was like, okay, now the only thing holding us back is, is capital, and and so yeah, you you want to, you know, like. Sometimes the next thing is capital. Not always. I yeah. think that's the e- easy go-to for a lot of entrepreneurs. Uh, they solve the problems and they think it's it's just capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas actually, there's a whole bunch of other things underneath that that are you know at times more important. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's uh, you know uh, fundamentally that's where. The, the next move was for us. And so, sure, you know, some of that goes into marketing. Some of it goes into product. Sure. And and you guys have found success, I imagine, with, with uh, sponsoring podcasts. And, and you're on a lot of shows as a sponsor. And uh, and we'd like to thank you, actually, for becoming the exclusive sponsor of Beyond Eight Figures. I don't know if you realize that or not, but you guys <laughs> just signed on for a $2 million deal uh, to be the exclusive sponsor for Beyond Eight Figures. So your, your capital's got to go somewhere, Mike. So we're, we're helping you. Helping you help us, help us help you. It's a it's a win win for everybody. Uh, so thank you for that. But uh, no, I'm serious. We actually do want you as a sponsor. But no, but but seriously, <laughs> is that one of the tools that you have found just because you've got it so dialed in in terms of who your ideal prospect is that many of those ideal prospects listen to podcasts? It is an expensive approach to sign up uh, w- one show at a time, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> meaning like one podcast at a time. No, like, yeah, listen, I, I think when you're spending your, your, you know, your advertising and marketing dollars, you want to put them where you think your audiences are. Like we're constantly testing, you know, whether it be podcast or other things. Right. And mm-hmm. frankly, you know, we're on lots of podcasts that don't actually prove to be a good fit for us. And, yeah. you know, we're disciplined about all that stuff. So I think, uh, you know, listen, I, am a big fan of podcasting in the sense that I think it's a valuable medium and, and actually, you know, got lots of growth ahead of it, which is exciting. Like thanks to, you know, things like, um, 
what was it called? Uh, that crime one that, you know, serial was oh, kind of like a, sure. like that was like the, the crossover where it went mainstream, right. Yeah. Which was cool. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I don't know about you, but then sort of, uh, I guess you're a 1995 internet guy and I'm, I'm sort of like a 99 internet guy They're, they're, they're you know, it, it's been around for a while and I, I just love what you can find here, right. Yeah. The niche, niche content. So, so yeah, sometimes you can collect you know, like audiences that are, are a good fit for what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Not for every organization. It's, you know, it takes a bunch of work to make it go, but, um, yeah, uh, it, it podcasting's, uh, you know, it, it's also, I mean, for me, I'll say this, we love helping people who are just getting started out in podcasting, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, often like the first sponsor of various shows. Oh, that's, that's, fu- that's fun, right? Yeah. We've been waiting for you. So it's, uh, so we're all good on that. Let's, um, and and I just want to make sure we close the loop around this capital raise here, though, because it's an important part of the process in terms of our, our show focuses on starting, scaling, and exiting. And in terms of scaling, bringing in that capital, uh, obviously, is an important piece of that puzzle. Uh, if you bring it in about $100 bucks, it, it leads me to believe that we may actually be talking to someone in unicorn territory. What was the valuation on that last raise? You gotta, It's got to be over yeah. a bill, no? We, uh, you know, uh, not be the sort of thing I would put into the uh, the public uh, <laughs> domain. Yeah. But uh, you know, listen, so terms- we've come a lot. We've come a long way from those early days. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So, to terms of that raise were not disclosed. I mean, that's fairly mm, unusual, at least in terms of its traditional venture venture money. No. Uh, actually, I mean, I think most firms don't. What I've seen in the past couple of years is people really use it as a branding exercise. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's interesting. In some cases, they're, you know, they're trying to get the highest value they can so they can tell everybody it's worth something. And then nobody sees the shareholders agreement and you realize, oh, geez, like, you know, I, I just joined a company that's worth a billion dollars that will never actually be worth a billion dollars mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah so i i you know my heart breaks when i think about the the gap between uh you know frankly the the misalignment that sometimes created pursuing you know top valuations uh the the information mismatch between employees prospective employees and, and companies like mm-hmm. I, I hate that stuff and it's 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 hard because uh, it's you know I, what i've learned over the last bunch of years is it's complicated and it's it you is. know it's not a, not a lot of information out there and um you know startups also like there's just they can go a hundred different ways and a lot of that's tracking uh you know sort of behind the scenes so 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 you don't know so yeah. anyhow um I, I you know i sort of like to stay away from all that stuff and you know uh, throw a lot of shade on some of the companies that are you know pounding their sure. chest around various things yeah no i i got you on that and and let me just ask you this then because it's typical for most founders to be sitting in the territory of owning common stock right and once you start bringing in outside investors you take a second seat basically you take a second position to the preferred position that the investors want to be in in terms of any sort of waterfall that might take place upon an exit or any sort of liquidation uh you know let me just ask you this then so did you were you able to structure your deal for yourself and your two original partners in a manner that shifted from common stock ownership into any sort of preferred position or you do or to this day are you still a common stock owner so here's how I would uh, uh, you know think about it and I think what's important to me is um, you know I really believe in alignment and so I, I like I'll go ahead and say like hey ours is not a cookie cutter kind of off the shelf thing um, and you know I think I just principled around like hey what are the moments when like 
people get really on the opposite sides of various tables, you know, and what are the likelihoods of these scenarios to, you know, to play out. And, you know, I, I just believe in trying to anticipate what those, you know, scenarios are and, and trying to ensure that there's an appropriate level of alignment so that what's an incentive for one uh, party is like, you know, at the expense of another. Um, so, yeah. But I mean, but we're trying to help folks who may be in a similar position, right? So folks who listen to the show could be in a scenario here where they're looking to raise capital. They're not thinking about it. I mean, our goal here is to be somewhat of an advisor, right? To be somewhat of a yeah. of a mentor, if you will, for our audience, right? So it's an important discussion. I mean, I made that mistake with Liquor.com uh, over the years. And so, you know, as capital comes in, typically the founders end up taking a uh, a less attractive and less attractive and less attractive position in the case of an exit, right? So what advice would you have for others based on your experience then in terms of what founders should do as they look to protect themselves or be in a position of, of benefit in the case of an, an exit? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it's complicated, Right. Uh, and the reason it's complicated is because it, it is somewhat situation dependent sometimes. Right. Like if, you know, if you're a first time founder, you, you know, you're raising capital and you're on the brink of going out of things and you're going to get like some kind of market sheet. You know, if you're like Zuckerberg and Facebook is going off the hook and you have good counsel around you, you're probably making something totally bespoke where no one can do anything unless you choose to let that happen. Like there, there is a continuum on these things. And For so sure. first thing is to know, hey, hey, where are you at? Right. I, I think another thing is to realize, like, what, what are you getting? What are you buying? I think, um, you know, I really encourage folks to not raise money to keep their companies alive. You got to think about like, hey, do I have a path to return this capital or alternatively, Nobody has any clue, and we're just paying to start off and fund this journey, and we all take the risks there, right? Like we're going to write some paper valuation, but we have no revenue today. We have no clue if this thing's going to go. I, you know, I think you're to some extent buying an opportunity if you're if you're raising a pre you know pre revenue. Um, let's say you raise two million dollars pre revenue, mm -hmm. and let's say the company doesn't go well, mm -hmm. okay, and you get nowhere, right? Like my thing would be like, okay, if you don't get, let's say you get one point eight million dollars back. Right. I don't know. Like, does that go back to the investors or, you know, do you get some of that as well? Like, I don't know. I think you got the opportunity to explore that thing. You probably learned some stuff. Mm -hmm. You might be on to your next thing. Like that sucks. I get it. But, you know, you had no revenue when you showed up and you took a check. Right. Yeah. Now, if you're showing up and you're you know doing 20 or 30 million bucks in revenue and you're like, I'd like to write a check. Like, I think you're it's a different bit of a different story. Right. And presumably like the you know, the dark clouds, zero dollar exit value is going to be a different scenario as well. So, so I like, I think you need to know where you're at and you need to know, you know, what it is that, um, you know, how you should look at that capital. Mm -hmm. I have sort of helped a company get started with another group of folks and, um, you know, we raise capital and I, I'm sure there'll be a pref on that capital. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's, you know, like, and it'll probably be, you know, cause I'd like to think the first round is probably like five or 10 or something like that. It'll probably be a pretty big one. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, it's like, hey, you know, you're going to have to clear that hurdle before you see a dollar, right? Which, you know, may sound crazy to some people. Now, this is a pretty, you know, organized operating team. You know, I, I think they're they're going to be trying to hunt, a, you know, a 30, 40, 50, 100, you know, billion dollar outcome. So, you know, that's everyone is eyes wide open. I mm -hmm. think it's harder when it's kind of your first time navigating some of this stuff. Yeah. 
Well, we're going to have to uh, wrap here fairly soon. So I just want to get a couple last questions in here. And then, of course, Richie and Mary, I know you guys have been taking it all in. If you guys didn't have anything else you want to add, feel free. Uh, but what's your what's your vision around this now that you've taken in? I mean, let's just call it uh, south of 100 million, but certainly uh, you know, close to nine figures anyway in terms of outside capital. Uh, you've got 14 years into this thing. What What is your vision insofar as an exit? Well, um, <clears throat> the way I, I like to describe it is, you know, you're you're basically you're solving for, uh, you know, like, uh, let me rewind. If you're running the clock like 10 or 15 years, everybody's goal was to go public. Right. That was like the dream. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know why exactly, but mm -hmm. like you kind of drink that Kool-Aid. and It's like, oh, that's the thing that you do. Oh, yeah. Right. Sarbanes-Oxley comes along, everything else. Like who really wants to be a public company today? Mm -hmm. Like that's not a ton of fun. Like the reasons to do it are to offer liquidity, you know, for for your investors. And I'd mm -hmm. also say perhaps even more motivating as a founder is for your employees. Right. Mm -hmm. So so that's an option you want to have. Um, there is a whole bunch going on in the private equity world. I think this is less well understood than it used to be, and there's more money here doing interesting things, and they really like software companies. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the you know sort of the industry I'm from. Um, you know that's a path, right? And you want to have a profile that you know works you know for here or there, uh, and then um, uh, the, you know the final thing is you know, maybe somebody's interested in, in buying you, right? Mm -hmm. um, th those are kind of the three exit paths. That, you know if if you have to have some kind of an exit, unless yeah. you can't just keep going, right? Well, let's and so, talk about you, you, know, you personally, though, Mike. What, what, which, yeah. what's your pref? If you had to choose one of those three paths, which would it be? Yeah. So my interests are, uh, you know, building a, an enduring company uh, and, and helping a lot of people, right? You know, the capital. These other decisions should be an aid of that. Right. And so, you know, can you do that as a public company? Yes. Can you do that as a private company? Yes. My interest is just making sure, you know, things carry on and that we continue to help folks. Yeah. And I, I'm less fussed about which one of those things it is uh, personally. Yeah. This is Richard. I have a quick question for you going back kind of in the beginning processes. Let's just say it's in the starting to scale. What was it since everything you described was about being hyper-focused, niching down. What was it that made you decide to uh, create your own competitor uh, uh, as opposed to A-B testing within? What, was the what, what made that decision happen? How much time do we have? No, <laughs> we have answer literally my... three minutes. <laughs> okay, we have three minutes. Okay, so here's the story. Um, we came to a place where – Whole new technologies have been created that people take for granted today for building products like ours. Consumer expectations had changed. Like there was no mobile phone, smartphone when we started, and now you push a button and a taxi shows up. So we had uh, technology that basically to, to get the user experience that we wanted, we needed to like really focus on, on redesigning versus like just changing our back end. Mm. That meant we needed to replatform. Okay. In a nutshell, that's the problem. That's what we did. When you replatform, there's a whole bunch of things that can go bad. Uh, and, you know, like, for example, you build something that actually doesn't improve your business. And so to mitigate some of those things, we created a, a, in stealth a secret company uh, called Billspring um, and uh, incorporated it, had its own logo. And we, we made that the Petri dish where we test the building of our new platform before it became the company's new platform. Got it. Uh, and, yeah. So, so basically the, sh the short version then reading between the lines is you were going to get all the upside gains of the knowledge and the real-time 
analysis without the downside risk of messing up FreshBooks potentially. That's right. And and so we kind of sp- we we split test companies is the way I like to think about it now. <laughs> yeah. It's great. Super smart. All right, Mike, look, we uh we really do appreciate you taking the time to share so much of the story with us here about FreshBooks. Uh if people want more information, obviously they can uh just check out FreshBooks or maybe we'll put something at beyond8figures.com/slash Fresh books and uh, and again, thank you for uh, becoming the exclusive sponsor of our show here. And we'll send the uh, the contract very very soon for you to, to sign off on that. You, you better <laughs> sign up for Fresh Books. And I got to sign up for Fresh Books first, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 But, you know, there's only one format we accept around here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. cash money. All right, man. Really do appreciate your time and uh, and congrats on the growth of the business. And uh, no such thing as an overnight success, of course. And uh, and you are certainly the poster child for staying with that and persevering. So folks, check out FreshBooks. Check out Mike McDermott. That's M-C-D-E-R-M-E-N-T at FreshBooks as well. Mike, thanks so much for joining us here on Beyond 8 Figures. Thanks for having me. All right, my friend. All righty. Well, Mary, Richie, Wade, another, uh, so another really interesting story. So what are we doing with story. our lives? I know. What are we doing <laughs> with our lives? It seems to be a theme that comes up uh, at the end of Such all of these shows, growth. right? Such impressive such impressive growth, but such slow and steady growth, right? I mean, years is going to go by no matter what. I know. You've got fifty million down the road, right? Plus, and, and it is interesting when you when you start thinking about what has to happen in order to re well for the investors to recoup what they invested into this. Now, I mean, on one hand, it's you know, okay, we raise a little bit here and there. But in the last two rounds, they've raised over $100 million, yeah. or roughly $100 million. That, that's a whole new ball of wax. And so there has to be an exit on that, right? I mean, I know he's being a little coy about what he would prefer and this, that, and the other. But reality is that there's going to be a buyout, whether it's a QuickBooks or someone of that nature. I mean, but someone is going to come in. I'm surprised um, they haven't yet. Well, you know, and then it's interesting, right? It's like it's the 10% of a $100 million pie versus the 100% of the $1 million pie. You know, it's like, which which do you want? And as this continues to grow, of course, in terms of users, I mean, that that that's going to be a B. Like, it, well, it will absolutely be a B and there's on a the end of that exit. there's a big difference between a product like this going to sell as opposed to, like, a Groupon. Mm-hmm. Like, I knew back when that first was offered, yeah. they were complete idiots for not taking it. Complete idiots, right? Yeah. Look in hindsight of their valuation now. Yeah. But this is there's this is a service that's Groupon was like a glorified email. Yeah. This is actually like a network effect. These well, guys yeah. are locked in. They don't they're not gonna yeah, just once stop you become this. a customer of FreshBooks, you're gonna stay, you move all your that's stuff over to it. And so it's got a lot it's yeah. not just an instant hit in terms of sales, it's ongoing revenue. That's the beauty of having a SaaS company. All right, my friends, look, we gotta jump here and uh, great talking with Mike of FreshBooks. For Mary Goulet and Richie Ote, I'm Steve Olsher. We'll talk to you next time on Beyond 8 Figures. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to Beyond 8 Figures. Share your thoughts on today's episode and what you'll apply to your business by emailing us at feedback at beyond8figures.com. And if you haven't already done so, we'd greatly appreciate it if you took a moment now to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Until next time, keep scaling.